there's no cover. It's just me out there. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to stand beside it. It's just me. And there's liberation in that and great precarity, great vulnerability in that position. I'm Taylor Defoe, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. In 2018, Helen Molesworth was unceremoniously dismissed from her position as chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. The move proved controversial among industry insiders, many of whom cast it as an example of an institution punishing its employee, a straight-talking, strong-willed feminist, for refusing to march in line. But for Molesworth, whose resume also includes stints at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston, the Baltimore Museum of Art, and the Wexner Center for the Arts, the backlash didn't change the facts. For the first time in years, she was a curator without a home. Since then, Molesworth has struck out on her own, and she's been as active as ever. She's guest curated critically acclaimed exhibitions at David Zwerner, Jack Shaneman, and the International Center of Photography. She's also hosted a hit podcast, Death of an Artist, about Anna Mendieta, led a series of filmed artist interviews, and been profiled by the New York Times. The forward momentum has given the curator little cause to look back. That is, until now. This month, Faden will release Open Questions, a career-spanning collection of Molesworth's essays, all previously published in exhibition catalogs and art journals. Most of the written pieces are about artists, people like Carrie James Marshall, Catherine Opie, and Lise Uskiewicz. But the real subject of the book, of course, is Molesworth herself, and it's a rich text in that regard. Ahead of the book's release, I sat down with Molesworth to talk about the project and the period of deep personal reflection it inspired. Hi, Helen. Welcome back to The Art Angle. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me back. Congratulations on the release of your new book, Open Questions. We'll talk about the book and some of the essays inside, but first I wanted to start with a broader question about your relationship to writing. Earlier this year, the New York Times published this great profile of you pegged to Face to Face, an exhibition of artist portraits you curated at the uh, International Center of Photography. In the article, I think you referred to writing as your secret sauce. You said, quote, I love writing for the ear. I always imagined myself as the narrator. Even my curating was basically a form of writing in my mind. Each art object is a sentence, a room is a paragraph, six rooms is an essay. So I wanted to begin here. What do you mean by writing for the ear? And how have you kind of translated that approach to other mediums, to curating, to podcasts, and so on? I think when I say that I try to write for the ear, another way of saying that is maybe I try to write how people talk, which is a way of saying that in my experience of art writing in particular, but of various forms of writing, that one of the things writing does is it can become a kind of professionalized language. I mean, we could see this perhaps most clearly in the law. Like we have the very things that govern our relationship to each other transpire in a language that almost none of us speak and very few of us understand and makes most of us incredibly anxious. And it struck me that that works in the law's advantage to keep some people outside and other people inside. 
early on in my life in the art world felt that art writing did something similar, that we wrote in a language that was so far removed from how folks talk to one another, and that I believed in art as a communicative function. And so I was trying to broker a kind of arrangement between, on the one hand, the professionalized language I had, in fact, learned and enjoyed deploying, but also realized the degree of artifice and exclusion that it entailed. And so writing for the ear was a way of, I had of thinking about talking particularly to my friends who weren't involved in art about art. I had a great friend named Jason Fusco. He was studying in grad school to become a veterinarian, and I was studying to become an art historian. And he and I would go to bars and get ridiculously wasted. And he always wanted to know a story about an artist. He would light these two cigarettes and hand me one. It was back in the day when those things happened. And he would say, tell me a story. And I would say, okay, so there's this guy named Marcel Duchamp, and he was friends with this woman named Florian Stettheimer. And like, I would do that. That was the beginning of writing for the ear, in a way. That makes perfect sense. And uh, you and I are aligned in that interest. I've come to kind of think about, in a sense, my primary function as an art writer, as an art critic, is an act of translation to a certain extent, bridging the gaps between the tower of the art worlds and the people who want to experience it. Let's talk about the book itself. There are uh, 24 essays in it, all previously published in exhibition catalogs and journals and magazines like Art Forum and Freeze in October. Some of those journals are kind of known for their kind of highfalutin art world speak, but your pieces for them do not indulge in that. The collection also spans three decades of your professional life. I'm curious, what was it like traveling back through time as you revisited those pieces of writing? And how did you settle on these particular essays for inclusion? Well, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to be friends with so many artists and organize, you know, a kind of double handful or maybe a scant two handfuls of retrospectives. So I knew something about how bad it was going to feel to go back and read everything and look at everything. And I also kind of knew how important it would be to go back and read everything and look at everything. Because I do think when we give artists retrospectives in museums, one of the things we're doing is giving that artist an opportunity to see a lifetime's worth of work that's been dispersed, that they cannot see altogether. And to have that moment is a profound privilege. So mostly I'm overwhelmed by the privilege of being able to have this book of a collected volume of essays. But one thing that is really interesting to me is, and I don't know quite how to say this in a way that doesn't sound stupid, but I've only had like a handful of ideas. So it seems like I've had more ideas than that, or I have this really heterogeneous practice. But in fact, I've kind of been chipping away at the same problems for three decades. And that made me feel oddly good in a way. Like, oh, there is something there. Like, there's a through line to my own work. Like, I haven't been buffeted by the winds of fashion, or I didn't look with my ears, as they say sometimes. I had a set of concerns that I was interested in as a person, as an art historian, 
as a curator, as someone interested in progressive ideas, as someone interested in institutions. And I chipped away at them. And I didn't quite know all the through lines were there, that so much of my interest could be seen early, and that it was cumulative. That was good for me to see. How I chose the essays? Gosh, I almost, like, there's part of me that almost doesn't remember. There's been several different tables of contents, as you might imagine. I know that I wanted to foreground some of the work on Duchamp that I felt had gotten scattered and that people didn't sort of identify me as a Duchampian. And I kind of wanted that moment. I was also really aware that when you write a monographic essay, an essay on one artist, I felt those essays sort of disappeared too, in a way. You only read them if you're reading about that artist. You don't read them if you're reading about a topic. And so I wanted to see if I could kind of reanimate those monographic texts and see how they stood the test of time, so to speak. And then finally, I was interested in charting, again, maybe selfishly for myself, if there was a change in my writing, had I evolved as a writer, as well as a thinker, as well as a participant in the art world over the 30 years. And so I tried also to choose a range of essays that moved us from my earliest writing to the most recent. It's kind of an obvious follow-up. How do you felt you've evolved as a writer over that time period? I'm curious, too, if there were any favorite essays that you kind of left on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. I think about the essays on the cutting room floor all the time. And it's really interesting to me because when I worked as a curator, I never thought about the paintings I cut. I was ruthless. Cutting room floor is a cutting room floor. You move on. You tell the story. Like, very much like I'm a movie editor I'm Thelma Schoonmaker, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm sharp. But in my own ruminations about this book, which is really the only book that's my book, the other books are all about other things and other people, I have been plagued by the essays left on the cutting room floor. But to your other point of how my own writing has changed, or your other question rather, I think in the beginning... I'm much more academic. I'm still working on how to write in an academic context, or I'm trying to pull that academic rigor into my relatively new museum context. By the time we get to the end or the more recent essays, I'm not in a museum context and I'm not in an academic context. And I have to find a voice for quote-unquote myself, that isn't either straining against those two institutions or behaving within the conventions of those two forms of institutional writing. So I hear some of that writing as really quite different, as really trying to have a very different voice than the early material. I found myself while reading the book, going back and checking the times in which they were published, and I couldn't find a trajectory or an evolution of a specific writing style. And I think certainly what's present throughout all the essays is a very strong point of view. You've always had a point of view and a vision and opinions in all of your writing, which I love so much. I love that paradox you mentioned of learning that as you write more and more, you're actually writing about fewer and fewer ideas, or at least you isolate ideas and dig deeper into them more and more. 
you obviously just mentioned that. Can you kind of tell me about what some of those primary central ideas are? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that from the very beginning, I've been concerned about problems of labor, work. What is work? What is enough work? What is good work? What is good work opened up onto the next problem, which is taste. How do we make the judgments that we make when we are standing in front of works of art? Those questions of taste had one valence in the academy where taste is a bad word, right? Because you're ostensibly operating underneath the rubric of reason, which would negate taste. But once I entered museum life, it was really clear to me taste was everything. And that I could drape my choices in all kinds of intellectual apparatus, rhetorically in a very powerful way. And I had to be confronting my own taste constantly because I had to, on the one hand, lobby for it in terms of lobbying for the artworks I was trying to bring into that discussion and suspend it constantly as I negotiated other people's needs for the museum to do the public work of the museum. So it meant talking about work, acquiring work, displaying work that I didn't quote unquote like. And what did that mean, right? So taste has been a constant question. If you're talking about labor and taste, it's very hard not to start talking about women, <laughs> especially if you're having a vexed relationship to have I done enough work today? Or why does this cost this and that cost that, right? Because that's about value. Questions of value are central to questions of feminism. Questions of labor are central to feminism. And I think also questions of taste are central to feminism because we have a canon formed historically by extremely privileged white men of European descent. And so their taste became naturalized. So feminism opened up. That's like the third. And then I think the fourth is the daily, the quotidian, the everyday, the facticity of where I'm sitting, where you're sitting. I can see a patterned wallpaper behind you. I'm someone who thinks about those things. I think about who put that wallpaper there? When did they happen? What does it mean? Why do we think it doesn't mean anything? You know, I'm constantly thinking about the everyday. So those four ideas just return over and over again in the work. I remember I wrote a piece about the painter Hilary Petchus, and you and I spoke about her particular sort of fascination and revelation in the kind of quotidian of the texture and aesthetics of the everyday and really capturing that. I think that's one of her great strengths and your passion for it really came through in how you spoke about and advocated for her work. On the topic of labor and taste, I should mention that the essays in the book are loosely arranged into categories, and some of those categories are quite broad, but one of the sections isn't broad. It's actually quite pointed. It's called Full-Time Employment, or When I Really Became a Feminist. 
the three essays in that section talk about some of the lessons you learned upon joining the workplace, joining the workplace full time, and the idea that parody isn't the end game after all. That's one of the kind of questions undergirding those three essays. There's also an essay called How to Install Art as a Feminist, which looks at some of the strategies that institutions have taken in addressing their own lack of diversity or other imbalances and the strategies of rediscovery or reinsertion about how we shape those conversations. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this section and how you shaped it within the book and how you felt about revisiting these three essays in particular. They also begin with a note beforehand that addresses some of the ideas that you would change if you were to rewrite those essays today. Yeah, in each of the sections, I try to look back at the work with a certain kind of distance. And by that, I mean, we didn't go in and edit the essays. The essays are pretty much as they were. That was very important to me, that they have a kind of timestamp, that I'm not rewriting history, but annotating my own in the revision, in the sort of like the revisiting, rather, when I really became a feminist section has the, I think in some ways, the most searching revision, because of course, starting in 2000, I mean, it's three essays written pretty much between 2000 and 2010, I believe. And they really are a record of me trying to grapple with what it was like to be middle-class, middle-age on the younger side of middle-age, white woman, in a professional setting, advocating for things that that professional setting wasn't particularly interested in. You know, work by women and work by people of color. And also work that questioned the sanctity of the museum itself. But even though I was doing that work, the term woman for me was still, you know, woefully underthought. It was cisgendered, it was white, it was middle class. And honestly, sometimes I'm not even sure if it was queer. You know, I mean, it really was this just, it had a generic quality that I think defaults to whiteness and how many white people think of themselves in particularly blank and generic ways. And I think the essays suffer those blind spots. And so rereading them was curious in that regard to see one's own blind spots in the past is cringy. And then I decided, well, what is it other than cringy? Because cringy felt a bit like self-satisfied, like, you know, it's like guilt, like your ego still gets to be absolutely at the center of the story, even as you're trying to displace it. Yeah. So I wondered, even though my definition of woman is uninteresting to me now, what did those essays let me think? Like, what did those essays prepare me for? And I think in that regard, those essays did do a certain kind of work because they helped me and I think others really think about what do we do with these institutions that are actually predicated upon our absence? It's not that, like, they forgot to invite us in. They didn't invite us in on purpose. So we're what's called the structural absence, and the we there is women, white women, women of color, people of color, black people, indigenous people, poor people, 
you know, unprofessionalized people. Like it's a huge category of people that aren't being let in. And because I was trying to think about structural absence as an effect of power relations, that's what allowed me to move forward in some other areas of my work that I don't think I could have if I hadn't written those essays that have this really flat definition of woman at the center of them. I should mention that the essays in the book were all previously published, but there is some new writing in the book as well. And one of the great joys of reading it are the sections that feature new writing, the prefaces to sections or the prefaces to certain essays, the postscripts of certain essays. There's a really moving postscript to an essay you wrote on Lisa Yuskevich and the time that you wrote that and your own discoveries through writing that piece, which is very powerful. Helen, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the last five years of your career, a chapter that began with your departure from the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles in 2018. Up to that point, your professional life had largely been tied to universities and museums. But since then, you've gone independent and it seems to be you've been very productive in that time. I want to talk about the things that you've done during that period, but first I wanted to ask, what did you lose when you left MOCA and the institutional world writ large, and what did you gain? Well, people who get fired very publicly, like I did, and like a bunch of people in our field have been, one of the things we're subject to is a kind of social death. You don't get invited to stuff anymore. And people are anxious to talk to you because basically they're afraid it's catching. They're afraid it's contagious. And they don't know what to say. And they feel bad. So a kind of silence overcomes one. And a kind of isolation overcomes one. It's very painful. It's not only like in our field. You know, I follow Jenna Lyons for reasons that are indicative of my identity as a late capitalist subject. And Jenna Lyons talks about how the year after she left J. Crew, the phone didn't ring for a year. She's like fancy, you know, and changed J. Crew and made people lots and lots of money. And nobody called her for a year. So that's really real. That kind of social death is real and it has to be acknowledged, I think. And I think you hear strains of that in the Yaskovich essay in the postscript for it, because I think that was really the essay. You know, I had a come to Jesus moment with myself. I was like, okay, you're out here on your own. This phone is not going to ring. Now what do you want to do? Who do you want to talk to? What do you want to write? What do you want to look at? What do you want to think about? Now that you are not beholden to others in that way. What are you going to do, as Mary Oliver says, right? Like, what are you going to do with your one precious life? <laughs> like, um, and I perversely decided to go for broke on the Lisa Yaskovich essay. For me, that was really the breakthrough in a way. It was my own way out of the very painful sort of space of shame that I was, that I was in. 
Beyond the conditions of your departure from the museum, I wanted to talk more generally about the advantages and disadvantages of being associated with a museum versus being independent. So when you were at MOCA, you were the top curator at a top institution, and you had that name behind you. Now you're independent, and you're not limited by the constraints of donors and boards and bureaucratic red tape. You've taken full advantage of that freedom in a lot of ways. You have all kinds of projects on your plates. You're curating shows at galleries and museums. You've led podcasts and a series of video interviews. I'm curious if you feel more empowered now as an independent kind of worker, or if you miss anything from being associated with an institution. It's definitely both and. There's an enormous amount of freedom I have at the moment. And all the truisms about freedom are true. With freedom comes responsibility. There's no cover. It's just me out there. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to stand beside it. It's just me. And there's liberation in that and great precarity, great vulnerability in that position. I also feel, though, how to say it? I had a great run in museums. I got to do a lot of amazing exhibitions, big, big time shows. And I don't know if those sorts of shows are really on tap right now in museums. You know, I don't see that a certain kind of historical sweep or historical ambition right now. Like, I don't know, would anyone let me do a Black Mountain College show that cost over a million dollars? You know, didn't have a single gallery attached to it, didn't have a big name artist. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's like real old fashioned kind of work. And I don't know what museum could see their way to that type of show right now. I think they're under such ridiculous pressure. But I guess maybe the thing I want to say that's a little more of a passion plea to the field in general. I taught at MICA last spring semester. Joan Waltmath had invited me to be the visiting critic in the painting school at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And I went regularly for the whole semester, and I loved it. I loved teaching. I loved being in the classroom. I loved being with the students in a way that I had not. When I first got out of grad school, I hated teaching. It's one of the reasons I went to be a museum person. And I could sense from many of the colleagues I have my age who are still teaching that they are exhausted and they are tired of teaching. And I also know that a lot of curators of my level are also exhausted. They're out of gas. And I think that institutional life is problematic that we are not allowed to move around with a little more fluidity. I have a headspace and energy for teaching now that I would never have had 15 years ago. I'm ready to teach. And my friends who are my age are all retiring and they're exhausted. But how great it might be for some of those artists to like have a position in a curatorial department at a museum to enliven and invigorate institutions that have perhaps become a bit moribund through their own fear, because museums are not so fearful. So I guess 
when I think about my trajectory, what I wish were more available in general in the world, a degree of boundary crossing professionally that would allow us to move our energies around and move our intelligences around and put them in new contexts that in which they can be enlivened and we can be enlivened so that we're not all ground down by the institutional quality of our professional lives. I love that idea. Certainly have my support. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, we rule the world. That's what I would like to do, Taylor. Exactly, exactly. Um, to paint with broad strokes here, I think we could say that the kind of institutional art landscape has changed a decent amount in recent years, in part due to the rise of museum unions and increased DEAI efforts and the kind of renewed public attention to issues like toxic philanthropy and the environmental impact of certain venues. And I think you deserve some credit for shining a light on some of those issues throughout your career and recently as well. But with that evolution in mind, that evolution of the museum landscape in mind, would you ever consider returning to a museum position? And I guess if you were to go back to an institution, what would that scenario need to look like? Well, it's a big what if question because it's not, I mean, no one called. So I, uh, you know, it's like a fantasy, you, you know, I mean, I don't know who, I mean, like in the game of musical chairs, when they take away the chair, like they often don't come back with a new chair and say, here, you could sit here. So many of us who, those of us who got pushed out of these big institutions, there's not really an open door. So I don't really fantasize at that level. I will say I feel relieved not to be in institutions at this moment. I don't think I would have been particularly good at being in an institution at this moment. I mean, I, I don't know. I trained as an art historian. I really believe in art objects as knowledge producers and for better or for worse, in the history of the 20th century, museums are the institutions that allow and convey that knowledge. And a lot of those ideas are not front and center at museums right now. And so it had been hard for me to be in a museum right now. There's part of me that feels a little lucky. And also, yeah. thank you for saying that maybe I was responsible for some of it, because I also feel like I did good work within the framework of my time. And... Yeah. I think younger people now have different frameworks and different agendas, and they should do what they need to do. That's really well said. Certainly from my vantage point, it seems to me you are really doubling down on that mission you just articulated about using arts to convey information. The shows that you've curated on an independent basis have a kind of academic rigor that I think you identified as missing from some museum shows these days. And you've been able to do that within the space of the gallery world too, which is a kind of new, interesting trends that might be a conversation for another day. Um, you also have ran a very popular podcast that was art historical in scope, but really struck a chord with modern audiences. You're kind of omnipresent in the art world right now, which I find very exciting. With, uh, well, can I say with one thing about these... the galleries, if you don't mind? Because I, I was 
perhaps understandably anxious about moving from the museum sector to the gallery sector. And one of the things I've been so in awe of the gallery sector is it does something still, or the galleries I've worked with, this artist is still really front and center. You know, when I entered the museum world, that was like the mantra of the contemporary curator, right? It's to center the artist, the artist needs, the artist's work. And that has really fallen away in museums, but it hasn't fallen away in galleries. And I wonder if part of why I've been able to do what I do is because centering the artist was something I was trained to do really early and still do it. And the galleries are where I can still do that in a very powerful way. That opportunity you're talking about, it makes sense at a gallery like David's Warner, whom you've worked with many times now, and they have a recent history of putting on these academic and rigorous, but still very accessible shows that were organized by fellow writers and scholars like Hilton Alls or Jared Ernest. Do you think the opportunity to explore ideas with the artist front and center is available at other galleries as well? Or is that something that needs to happen at the kind of top blue chip level? I don't know. I mean, certainly my experience at Zwerner, happy to be in the company of Jared Ernest and Hilton Alls in this regard, because they're also both writers and I'm a writer. And there's a way, I don't know, just the value placed on intellectualism and creativity and their inextricability from one another in this particular context has been overwhelming and life-giving. Um, so I think it probably exists in many galleries, but I think there's also, unlike a museum, which is a very complicated institution that must serve the needs of many, many people, there's something ruthlessly efficient about a gallery that bears the proper name of one person. Decision-making is clear, but more than decision-making, the values are clear. The values espoused by the David Swerner Gallery are very straightforward. They're unambiguous. And I think after years of a lot of ambiguity in museums, that lack of ambiguity in the values at Swerner, for me, is a source of great relief because it allows me to do the work. It allows me to put on a great Noah Davis show. It allows me to put on a great Ruth Asawa show. It allows me to do the work. You mentioned a, a kind of renewed interest in teaching, which is very encouraging to hear. I'm curious if there are any other dream projects you have on the top of your bulletin board that you're kind of looking to explore in these next few years while you have the freedom of being independent and the juice of putting on all these shows and podcasts What's next? Well, as my younger friends say, I'm just going to put this out into the universe. <laughs> I'm going to manifest this. I think that the art world, as we construe it, or the history of art, or however you want to define this baggy thing we're a part of, is filled with some of the great stories of our time. What I really want to do is crack the televisual media space. What I really want to do is bring some of the great art world stories, the great bar stories, the great moments where you're telling someone a story about art and you say, and then they did what? And the, your friend is like, 
get the fuck out. Like those <laughs> are the stories I would love to figure out how to crack the Hollywood nut. Like why is it when we see ourselves represented in Hollywood, it's so cringy, but we know the values and the knowledges and the feelings and the stories that our world contains are so extraordinary. So that's what I would love to do next. I love that. Out of curiosity, the art world on film is one of my great nerd interests. I've had many discussions about this with a friend and former colleague of mine. I'm curious if you've ever felt the art world was successfully captured on film or TV. No, I've never really seen it successfully captured. Have you, Taylor? I mean, I don't, I feel like it's always teetering, if not falling into caricature. Yeah. And more often than not used for satire, which is telling, but not comforting from our perspective, perhaps. Helen, I think that's a pretty appropriate place for us to wrap up. It was great to chat with you, and thanks again for being on The Art Angle. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.